0: Father God, Father God, would you please, we pray, open our ears to hear you, open our eyes, that we might see you and we might see the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. Would you please be seated. Well, this is the season between all saints and Advent. Next Sunday is Advent Sunday. This is the last Sunday before Advent, and it's called Christ the King. And the first reading that we had today from Colossians chapter 1 speaks of Christ as the ruler of all. It's a pretty impressive reading. This Christ is the king of all creation. He's the image of Literally, the word there is icon. He is the icon of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of God dwells. All things were created through him and in him and for him. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the one who is the head of creation. That's what it means when it talks about him being the firstborn of creation and he is the head of the new creation the head of the church the people his people the people of those who are born from the dead he is the one who has and can reconcile all things by his death on the cross it's our individual relationship with him as we become part of him and he becomes part of us that we each discover our unity, that we're part of each other, and that every other is part of us. And so we have here the image of Christ the King, or Christ, as you will often see in, in, in churches, Christ Pantoc- Pantocrata christ the ruler of all this is from um, monreal cathedral in sicily and i find it absolutely exceptional christ is exalted he rules on high his arms embrace all of creation in one hand he holds the scriptures By the way, when they hold the scriptures in icons or in images, it's always worth trying to work out what what, what is written there. In this one, I've worked out that it's part of it. (coughs) He's saying, I am the light of the world. And with the other hand, he blesses. This is kingship, as we understand it, full of power and might, This is the king before whom we bow in awe and fear, before whom we kneel to serve. But our New Testament, our Gospel reading, gives us a very different picture of Christ the King from Luke. It's the picture of the crucified king. He is clearly the king. Pilate writes an inscription over his head. Maybe he thought he was mocking Jesus, but it was also the truth. This is the king of the Jews. But this is the king who refuses to save himself. I, I was speaking with someone yesterday. Uh, in, in fact, it was the person who worked uh, uh, with Dan and Rachel with New Life. And he was telling me how he came to faith, and he said it was precisely this fact that bugged him, that got to him. He thought that drew him to Jesus. He thought he could not understand why Jesus, who had the power to heal the sick, to walk on water, to calm storms, who could raise the dead, why Jesus didn't come down from the cross and show them all, If you like, that's the first kind of king. That's what, if you like, what we would imagine a king would do. Three times in our short reading from Luke, there's a reference to saving yourself. The leaders say, verse 35, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Messiah. Messiah is another word for king, God's king. The soldiers mock in verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals crucified with Jesus says in verse 39, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. I mean, frankly, what use is a ruler or a leader to us if they end up crucified, if they can't save themselves, let alone us? And yet Jesus, who could have saved himself, refuses to save himself. When we cry out to Jesus, when we call on him to save us, maybe from an unbearable situation, maybe from terrible pain, maybe from death, and nothing seems to happen, it does not mean that he is powerless or absent. Far from it, as Jesus hangs on the cross, He chooses not to save himself. He is showing his power by remaining on the cross in obedience to his father and in love for us. That's what he came to do, he came to die. From as early as chapter nine in Luke's gospel, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem where he knows that crucifixion is what lies ahead of him. When Peter suggests to Jesus there's another way out, no, you don't need to go and die, Jesus rebukes him. When Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is arrested, he does pray, Father, take this cup away from me. I don't want to do it. But then he says, But not my will, your will. He knows that this is what has to be done. Crucifixion is one of the most terrible cruel forms of judicial execution that human beings have devised. But what Jesus suffers is far more than even what those others who were crucified with him suffered. Yes, there was the physical pain. Yes, there was the mockery and the shame. But as he hung there, he hung as an innocent man Yet, as a man who before God was guilty, he became the Lamb of God, the sacrificial offering, who took away the sins of the world. He was the suffering servant. All of these are pictures from the Old Testament, on whom all our iniquities are laid. He took unto himself all our sin, and God the Father turns his face away from his Dearly beloved son, and the sky turned black in the middle of the day, and the Lord Jesus in his crucifixion really did descend into the pit of hell, into the pit of utter God-forsakenness. And the message of Luke here, as he tells us of the mocking of the leaders, the soldiers, and the criminal, is that Jesus the King could have saved himself. But he chose not to because of his obedience to his Father and his love for his Father and us. And because Jesus the King hung on the cross, there are two immediate consequences. The first is that sins are forgiven. They crucify Jesus and he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Maybe they did not realize that in crucifying Jesus, they were crucifying the Lord of glory, but they do know that they are crucifying an innocent man, and yet he prays that God will forgive them. Every day in our morning prayer, we repeat the words of Zechariah, who prophesies over the baby, John the Baptist. He speaks of how John the Baptist will be a herald who goes ahead of the coming King. Now, I've recently been reading a book, a history book about Richard III of England. And when Richard III came to the throne, he would send out heralds to cities to say, I am coming, and he was saying, make sure, make sure you're ready for me and make sure you have dealt with the rebels who oppose me because as far as he was concerned, those rebels either need to be hiding in sanctuary or put in prison, or even better, dead. Jesus, the king, when he sends his herald, sends somebody very, very different. This herald that Jesus sends, John the Baptist, well, Zechariah says of him, and you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of all their sins. Jesus came 2,000 years ago not to bring God's wrath on sinners. He came to bring God's forgiveness for sinners. Because Jesus did not save himself but died on that cross, he dealt with our sins. He took them onto himself. I often use this illustration, so simple, but it's so much says it. Here's us, there's God up there, this is our sin. It's my mobile phone, so it's actually probably quite appropriate. This is our sin. Here's the Lord Jesus, he is perfect. He lived a life of obedience and love and trust in God his Father. And on the cross, he takes our sin onto himself and he deals with it. Where's our sin? The guilt for our sin, the condemnation for our sin, it's been dealt with. There are many people in our world who claim that they uh, do not feel guilt because they have never done anything really wrong. Perhaps we do not feel guilty because we think that we have lived by the standards of the society in which we live. By our terms, we have been good people. And if we've broken the standards expected by our society, we have maybe paid the penalty, and so there is nothing outstanding that the standards of our society can be so perverted and twisted when compared with the standards of the kingdom of God, that that means nothing. Or perhaps we've so destroyed our consciences because we have become accustomed to doing what is evil, that we now feel no guilt when we do what is evil. I wonder whether the soldiers, having beaten, mocked, and then crucified Jesus, felt any guilt, maybe maybe not. But when God is at work in a person, when the Holy Spirit does begin to show us that Jesus is king, that we've rejected his love and rebelled against him, then we will begin to feel guilty. And that is okay. People often say today, oh, you must never ever feel guilty. No, it's okay, provided we don't give up, Provided we don't try and punish ourselves, because that's what lots of people try and do, or they sort of say, I, I'm worthless, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I'm going to go and, to the bottom of the garden and eat worms, in the words of one of our songs, <laughs> or, they, or, and, or provided that we don't try and work our forgiveness, try to make it up to God and earn our forgiveness because we can't do that. It's okay to feel guilty, so long as if it means that our guilt makes us to turn to our King, and we hear his words, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And we receive his forgiveness as a gift. Because Jesus, our King, against whom we rebelled, did not save himself, we can receive forgiveness of sins. And the second consequence is that the door into heaven is opened. The second criminal on the cross, almost certainly being executed for murder, recognises that Jesus is King. And he cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't ask Jesus to save him from crucifixion or death. He has already, even in his pain, begun to see that there is something so much bigger going on here. He's begun to recognize that the man hanging on the next cross is a king, but is a king who is so much bigger, so much more powerful than all the rulers of this world put together. His kingdom is not of this world, but it penetrates in and through this world. It's the kingdom by which all the kingdoms of the world are judged and will be judged. And so he turns to Jesus and cries out for mercy. And Jesus simply says to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm not sure which one of those words would have been most comforting, today, He was going through utter hell on the cross. It meant meant that it was soon going to be over. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's how Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, that place which is described by the prophets in the Old Testament, that place which is actually beyond our imagination. And today you will be with me, the King who loves us and died for us invites us to live in his presence for eternity. Because Jesus the King did not save himself. The door into heaven is open. So here is this other icon, this other image of Christ the King. Just check it's showing properly. it's an image you'll find in many particularly orthodox churches it's very similar to some of the amazing russian old believers crosses i, I bought one at of market a few weeks ago it's a sermon in a picture and it sums up this message we have christ on the cross the name above the shoulders of the figure here is Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ. And this Jesus is the King. Above his head is the inscription that Pilate wrote. He wrote it in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. Here it is in Slavonic. Four letters, standing for Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The halo, the nimbus, around the head of Jesus has the phrase Haon which is Greek for the one who is. When Moses asked God to reveal his name, God replied, I am who I am, So this is Jesus the king, but the king who chose not to save himself and who died. But there is more. Blood is dripping from Jesus' feet onto a skull beneath according to tradition, and I suspect that this is a tradition which came from a sermon illustration, which was slightly developed in order to explain a God truth. Jesus was crucified over the place where Adam, the first human and the first to rebel against God, was buried, and his blood falls on Adam's skull. He came to bring forgiveness to all who rebel against him, to bring life to the dead. Jesus' feet are nailed to a cross that is a diagonal. It stands for what you think it might stand for. Some will go up and some will go down. The thief on Jesus' left continues to mock and reject Jesus. The thief on the right receives Jesus and is promised, today you will be in paradise with me. On many crosses, not on this one, you will see four letters at the feet of Jesus. M-L-R-B, M-E-S-T-E-L-B-N-E-R-A-I-B-E-S-T. The place of torment becomes the door to paradise. And one other thing, You will often see the words nika, the letter, the word nika somewhere. Here it is underneath Jesus' arms. It's the Greek for he wins, he conquers. This is Jesus, the king who conquers. But he conquers not with the sword but with the cross, not with the power that crushes the other to the ground and forces them to serve him. This is the one who conquers the devil and evil by his love and obedience, who brings forgiveness and opens the gateway to paradise. No wonder we acclaim him in the words that are written here at the top of this icon. We worship your cross, O Lord, and we glory in your holy resurrection.